Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will pick up our text in Genesis 2, verse 4, and we'll see how far we can get. We read in the scriptures today, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." Well, that was through verse 9. I'm not sure that we'll even make it all the way through there. There's actually quite a bit here as we get into this discussion. Really, the contents from verses 4 down to the end of the chapter, verse 24, focus in on the creation of man, but there's a lot packed into this. Number one, we should note that this phrase, these are the generations, is the first Toledoth. We've made mention of that before, but there are several in the book of Genesis, and it's a great way to frame the structure of the book and it tells you about the things that are the, the what happens to the generations of right this is the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created so what do we need to know about them well we're zeroing in on man and the Toledos later that these are the generations of Abraham and and, and so forth and uh, you know and and we'll focus in and, and look at his offspring and, and it'll go from there. So we've talked about that. Uh, So really, verse 4 doesn't need a whole lot of explanation, uh, but we do see the direct creation in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and earth. There, interestingly, uh, that is actually that use of day there because it's not qualified by night and uh, evening and morning, nor a numerical value. Uh, That day there means the age. Uh, and that should just go without saying. I, I get it, and I'm anticipating, you know, blowback because we have people who are like, oh, if you say you're a literalist, then you have to be literal all the time. Well, no, we use language in in a certain way, and we understand that, and we give credence to that when we speak in our own language, and yet we don't allow that in the Bible when we say that we're literal. And that really just doesn't make sense. I mean, I can say back in my day, and you understand that what I'm saying is not a specific day on the calendar, but a period of time, especially if I am referring to like, say my teenage years or something like that. Well, this isn't even referring to something as broad as that. It's saying the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Well, we're now talking about a six day period. That is the day in which this happened. That is the age in which that happened. Well, then we have some description descriptions of this. 
and and we know this right because we have a we have a detailed description we know exactly what happened on what day we know when the vegetation came forth we know when the the land dwelling creatures came forth we we know that and then we get this synopsis we go back into creation to dive in a little bit and and get some more specifics so when we get to verse 5 when he says when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up and then we're given a reason for the lord god had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground what we are told then is everything is now in the soil is present, ready to be watered, ready to, ready to grow. I mean, we know that the vegetation uh, came up before the, the animals, and yet we discover that there was no watering source. And, and we see that a mist was gro- going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. So there is water, but there's yet no plants. They had not yet grown uh, at this point. The seeds are in the ground, and then he creates the garden, and he puts the tree there, and we get all that. But it's worth thinking about because there is a period of time when the plants are not yet there in full maturity. Uh, he says they had not caused it to rain on the land. There's a little bit of discussion. I don't want to get into too much technical detail, but again, uh, a lot of work has been done. What's interesting is the the work of, of Whitcomb, uh, John Whitcomb and Henry Morris, uh, the Genesis flood. They did a lot to bring creationism back to the forefront. And I think that their work was pioneering and it was great and it's done a lot uh, of good things. But one of the things that that work did, and I believe it was published in the 1960s, was it put forth this theory of a vapor canopy when we look at the waters above and and so forth. And there's a great technical description of this in uh, Jonathan Sarfati's book, The Genesis Account. Uh, But even going back as far back as 1989, which is now over 30 years ago, 34 years ago, Creation Ministries International had, had put out a word of caution uh, against that because it, there were just too many factors. No one had ever uh, been able to see that in the scriptures You know, for 1,800 years. That was not in any commentaries on the book of Genesis or anything like that. And so we really have to question that. I mean, the idea of like, you know, a hyperbaric chamber, and that's really what caused longevity of light. Well, now we have scientific data and we don't want to be fools. We don't want to look fools, right? Uh, The point is, is that a water uh, barrier or a vapor, water vapor barrier or whatever is not actually going to protect us from UV rays. Uh, and those type of things. And, you know, just from a logical standpoint, after the flood, if supposedly that's when the water vapor barrier canopy, if if we were subscribing to that, uh, obviously came down, if that were the case, uh, why is it that Noah lived for another 350 years after that, and he has the third longest recorded lifespan in the Bible, 950 years when he dies? So those are things that we should consider. Furthermore, and and Dr. Sarfati points this out, we have long post-Diluvian scripture in the Psalms. Psalm 148 talks about the waters out in the heavens as still existing, as in they they weren't taken down. Uh, And so those are things that we have to contend with. And so it, it seems that 
you know, obviously there was a great restructuring of the earth when we get to the Noahic flood and we'll get to that in due time. But uh, does that necessarily preclude any rain at all? Well, not necessarily. And uh, it seems that there is at least some evidence of stars. Uh, So it's, it's quite a discussion to have. But he says, at least for this time, there had not been any rain. He says there's a mist going up from the land, and the mist does water the face of the ground. We still have dew today, uh, but that doesn't usually prove to be sufficient. I live in a very humid area, and so we do get dew on the ground. And yet, when we're in a drought, the dew is definitely not enough to water my grass, which takes a lot of of water living in the extreme Southeast of the United States. It's a different kind of grass than Kentucky bluegrass and uh, it needs a lot of water and the mist is not enough. And so our grass gets brown and crunchy and it goes dormant until we finally start getting a lot of water, much more than the dew that comes up every morning. So this is the state in which we find the world on the sixth day. Now we know that we're on the sixth day because this is the day that man is created. And we know from Genesis one that that took place on the sixth day. So now we're zeroing in on day six and we're getting a description of the way that the earth was right at that point. So then when we get to verse seven, we find this and the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life and man became a living creature. One of the things that we need to note here in verse 7 is that the creation of man stands out quite distinctly from the, the all the rest of creation, where the all the rest of creation was spoken into existence out of nothing. God uses the materials that he has now created and uses them to form man. And so now man, just by virtue of how he is created— He is still created. We are still the work of God's hands, but how we are created and how Adam was created is distinct from the rest of the animal kingdom. And that's worth noting because that separation, that distinction has carried through and will always carry through for for the rest of creation and for as long as this earth and these heavens are here until God remakes them. Uh, But the point is, is that instead of just speaking man into existence, he actually forms him from the ground. And, uh, and then it says there's a, there's a time here. There's a point at which Adam is formed, but no life. And so then we have to have, uh, the breath of life. We have to have that inserted. And so God then breathes into his nostrils, the breath of life, and he becomes a living creature. Very, very interesting discussion on all this. And when you get really into the science, deep into this, we discover that, you know, for all the powers that we have in the laboratory and things like that, we don't have the ability to animate something. You know, you think of a frog, you know, think back to junior high and uh, high school uh, biology and dissection and things like that. And I remember doing that in in those uh, times uh, of schooling. And of course, you know, you're not given a live frog, but sometimes I've heard of that where the frog is alive and then you go and, you know, kill it and then dissect it for, you know, educational purposes. What's really interesting with that animal is to see that it is very much alive. And then you make a a cut, an incision, 
and all of a sudden that animal is dead, well, can you just sew it back up? Well, I suppose if you were really, you know, if, if you were a surgeon and things like that, a, a veterinary surgeon, you, you could suture the wounds back up and try and get everything going again. But once the animal's dead, it's dead. Once man is dead, once, once you and I have died, we're dead. And even that, you know, and, and even more mysterious, not just the idea of dying from trauma or something like that, like car accident or something like that. But when people just die of old age, there's nothing that can be done when the breath of life goes out of them. There's nothing that can be done to bring that breath back in. And, and so you know, the joke goes that, you know, technology is getting so far advanced that, you know, one day a scientist comes and says, we figured out how to do it. You know, they come to God. We figured out how to make man from dust, uh, the dust of the ground. And God says, that's great. Uh, go get your own dust. You know, <laughs> and the point is, is, you know, wherever we are, and it gets us to think we chuckle a little bit. But the, the point is this, is that, uh, A, we can't even make the dust and the raw building materials. We work with it. Uh, but even so, were that possible, we have this huge hurdle, and that is not just to form man uh, from the dust of the ground, but how do you get the breath of life uh, in him so that he becomes a living creature? Only God can do that. And this process by which he makes man is distinct from the rest of animal creation. And Obviously, we had a long discussion on the Imago Dei, the image of God, which is stated for us in 1, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. This formation of man has to really inform part, at least, of, of what this image of God is. This is, helps us understand what the image of God is. Let's continue then, see and see if we can get verses eight and nine uh, here, and then I think we'll probably wrap up this podcast instead of going super long as I have been doing in the last few. I apologize. Uh, in verses eight and nine, we read this: After he forms Adam, uh, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we, we find then that in, uh, in the process, like the vegetation was there, the seeds seemed to be in the ground and ready to go. And then it says that the Lord himself planted a garden, giving a pattern for work, by the way, uh, because when the mandate comes forward to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, one of the things that they're going to do is they're going to work the land. And we find out as a result of the fall, part of the curse that comes in chapter three is that the land will yield its fruit now after much labor and toil. Uh, but God gives a pattern for that in that he is the one who plants the first garden. And now Adam's going to be able to follow through with that and work the land as, as he's going to, we see the pattern established for us in verse eight. And it says in the East. Now I'm going to just give a little, uh, tip of the hat here to the verses that come following in verse 10, where we see the garden of Eden defined by, uh, these rivers. And without getting into too much of that discussion right now, because we're not into verse 10, I would just point out that 
this commentary here in the East is really from the perspective of Moses, who is writing this, and for the people who are going to be reading this. So if Moses is the author of Genesis, which we've made the case, then when we understand or we're trying to discern the location of the Garden of Eden, maybe we don't know exactly where it was, but it had to be east of where uh, the people of Israel are. It had to be east of Egypt, it had to be east of the wilderness where they find themselves. There's no, uh, probably he's not writing this while he's still in Egypt, but only after the Exodus and now they have time. And it looks like, you know, a lot of people have uh, speculated that during the wilderness wandering, during the 40 years when they're out in the wilderness, you know, they're not out just wandering around endlessly every day. I mean, by the time they get out of there, the nation is huge and, you know, hundreds of thousands, uh, probably over a million people, uh, they're only going to move a handful of times over the 40 years. They're, They're a nomadic people, and yet they seem to settle for a period of time before the pillar of uh, cloud by day and fire by night moves and indicates that they are to take up camp and move elsewhere. So most people don't think that they actually moved around, you know, definitely not more than once a year. And sometimes maybe even a little bit longer would go between them moving. So while they're out there in the wilderness, uh, this idea of in the East had to be East of where they are. So we'll just, we'll just leave that there. And that, that helps lend, uh, some, you know, some credence and information to the idea of, of where that garden could be. And we'll, we'll talk about that further when we get there. So there in the garden, then, uh, wherever this garden is east of where the people of Israel are at the, in the time of their wandering there, he put man whom he had formed. And so then we get this in verse eight, again, uh, this, this idea of formation, not just creation, but formation, very, very important because when we get to the creation of Eve, it's going to be formation, but not from the dust of the ground from Adam's side, which we've talked about a little bit before, but now we'll tie this together. So we have formed in verse seven. And then we have formed the same verb in verse eight and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in sight and good for food. And so here we find an accelerated growth so that as he's making man and he has the ability to make man uh, fully grown and mature. So Adam is probably the only one and Eve uh, who never experienced infancy and toddlerhood. And so because of that, they're going to need food and God is going to give them food in the garden. And so rather than them having to wait, I mean, you think about that. I've got, I've got fruit trees growing in my yard and we've got an avocado tree that I planted. It took, I think four years for it to finally begin to bear fruit. And we've got other trees, you know, we live down here where we can have citrus and things like that. And it's just taking a long time for these things to finally get to the point after I've planted them and even fertilized them for them to bear fruit. Well, man can't wait. Adam and Eve can't wait two or three years for these trees to start bearing fruit. So we see an accelerated, uh, accelerated growth. And so that's where we get this idea of to spring up. Uh, a, a very fast accelerated growth, every tree that is pleasant to sight. So when we started this in verse five, there's no tree, there's no bush, uh, nothing had happened. Nothing had yet sprung up. See that, that, uh, verb back in verse five, nothing had sprung up. Well, now in verse, uh, nine, he causes it to spring up. 
So we see that there, uh, nothing had sprung up and now God causes it to spring up. And he says, okay, that seed that's there, everything that's there, up you go. Uh, and now there is a process, a, a growth process, albeit accelerated. Every tree that is pleasant to sight, good for food. And now there's food uh, available. And within that, we have the tree of life right there in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll find out more about those later, but we discover that when the uh, when the challenge and the command comes uh, to eat, but not to eat, there's a restriction there of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then when the sin does take place, God says we have to go in and stop it lest they reach out their hand and eat of the tree of life and then live forever. So the tree of life is exactly what it sounds like. And we discover the tree of life making, uh, you know, it, back into the scriptures at the very end in the book of Revelation. The tree of life just means life. And there is an, a sense then when we have overcome the curse and we are given a, a new glorified body that can no longer experience death, uh, there are some people who will live unto life eternal and now get to, to eat of that freely, which is just incredible. And of course, the knowledge of good and evil, that tree there, uh, that's going to be there for testing, which we'll get to in uh, when we get to the, the mandate that is given, and then of course the subsequent fall. But those are all there right here at the beginning. Well, we'll wrap this up right there, and we'll pick it up in our next episode starting in verse 10. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.